Welcome to Ask the Educator, a podcast brought to you by Healthmark Industries. Are you a sterile processing technician or manager? Maybe you work in infection prevention or biomedical engineering. Whether you're a frontline tech, endoscopy tech, OR nurse, or surgical services administrator, you undoubtedly have influence in medical device processing at your facility. In each episode, we speak with experts from the Healthmark Clinical Affairs team, industry leaders, or special guests from the trenches to answer your questions and bring you relevant industry information, equipping you for excellence in medical device processing. My name is Kevin Anderson, and I will be your host. Now let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Ask the Educator podcast. This is your host, Kevin Anderson. I also have with me my new co-host, Adam Okada. Thanks for joining me, Adam, as always. And with us as our guest of honor, if you will, is Marianne Drosnock, uh, Dr. Marianne Drosnock. Uh, congratulations on the new degree, but thanks uh, most of all for joining us on this episode. Of course. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Adam, for having me on today. All right. So we wanted to start off or kick off a new series all about ANSI Amy ST91. We are very familiar with standards and guidelines and sterile processing or endoscope reprocessing, or all of the things that we do seem to have some sort of industry standards and guidelines, which is great. However, we all come from different backgrounds and experiences. And I can just say from my own personal experience, there was a time where I barely had any working knowledge of ANSI Amy at all, uh, let alone the various different documents and standards and guidelines that they have. So many of our listeners, I think, will have some working knowledge of ST79, which has to do with steam sterilization. So Marianne, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce listeners to what exactly is ST91. One thing that always has sort of bugged me, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking of this off the top of my head, and hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot, but where do these numbers come from? You know, one's 79, one's 91, maybe that would help, but they seem to not necessarily make sense to me. So hopefully maybe you can help that make sense, but also give us a brief overview of ST91. What's it about and what do we need to know about it? Yeah, sure, Kevin. And way to put me on the spot there because I have no <laughs> idea how they come up with the numbers. I don't okay. know why this is 91. Um, okay. Other than maybe they're working up in numeric order. Uh, fair but, enough. Yeah, fair uh, enough. That's, that's, uh, that's funny. But what I can give you is the background on where we're at today and how we've come there, which I think is always important to get a perspective um, and the background on what ST91 covers in case anybody's not familiar with that. So just as an introduction, I have been a part of this working group from its inception when we started thinking about it back with Nancy Chobin, who was my co-chair at the time. And that was in 2012 when we had the conversation and started filling out the forms to get this proposed as a new work item for Amy. Went through the process of doing that and officially formed the group in 2013. And that's when uh, Nancy was appointed as co-chair as the healthcare facility representative because she was from um, a healthcare institution at the time. And myself as a representative from industry, which is how Amy usually does it. They try to put one healthcare facility representative as a chair and the other being either industry or regulatory. So we did uh, start that process in 2013 and started drafting the document, which at the time was supposed to be a TIR, a technical information report. But if you think about the timing of when that was happening, you'll recall that that 
was the height or at least the beginning of, depending on the exact year, the scope outbreaks. So we knew all of a sudden there were infections that were happening and quickly what was a small working group at the time realized that we needed more than just a technical information report. That TIR or any TIR that's put out is really uh, just to give information to facilities about a certain topic. It doesn't hold the weight that a full standard does, and you can't include requirements in a TIR. So with the quickly evolving situation and the numerous patients who were affected by endoscope infections, we realized that we had to take it to the next level and then quickly were able to get that converted into a full standard, which meant we had to put more work into it and really think about the words and what were requirements and what were going to be recommendations. But we were able to get that through and issued the first version of ST91, the original one, in 2015. So for a standard going from 2013, 2015 was pretty quick. But We were in a dire situation with all these outbreaks and really trying to get facilities to up their game as far as what they do for endoscope processing. So that first one did come out in 2015. And then immediately after that was issued, we started updating it again because it was such a a quickly evolving situation. And we have a lot of uh, research that's being done in the endoscope and sterile processing world that really helps to give us the data that we need to make these changes. So we saw that we were there where we had now the evidence to support making further changes and requirements and recommendations for endo processing. So we started working on the new version right away, 2015. And as you know, it just came out not too long ago. So it took a little while (laughs) to, uh, to get to the point that we had a document that was really ready for release. And that came about then in 2021 is where we got to that point. So several versions of ST91 drafts later, uh, which were all seen by the committee itself, that allowed us to get to the point where we are with the document that was issued in 2021. And just as, as more background, I know there was a little confusion around the dating for ST91. But to explain how that happened is, as I said, we went through several committee drafts that only the committee members look at and revise and comment on. And we got so many comments every time it went out for review. The first time we sent it out, we had over 800 comments. The second time, over 600. The third time, over 400. And then the last time, over 200 comments. Each one we go through and resolve every single thought, comment, change that needs to be made by everyone on the committee. All voices are heard equally. And that's what got us to this final uh, the final draft, and that was approved by the committee. We had consensus, which doesn't mean unanimous approval. It means you have a majority of approval from the group. It went out for public review, and we addressed those few comments that we had from a public review. And then the committee itself had the final approval. It went to the Amy Standards Board in later in 2021. And then the ANSI, because it is co-accredited with the American National Standards Institute, they also reviewed and approved it in very late around the holidays in 2021. Then it still had to go through the final copy editing, the final print editing, which then was done in early 2022. So 
You'll see the document has a 2021 date, even though it was March of 22 when we finally saw the actual document in print. So that accounts for why the dating is sometimes confused on it, but it is a 2021 version. And that version completely replaces the 2015. It's not like ST79 for steam sterilization, where we saw the amendments come out that only overwrite certain areas or add certain text to the document. This is a complete revision overhaul of the 2015. So that is no longer should be referenced or utilized since we have this newer version that's out. But it does include the same inclusions and exclusions in the document. It is applicable to all flexible and semi-rigid endoscope processing steps in all healthcare settings. So every scope, everywhere that it's processed, best practices for all steps of reprocessing from your pretreatment through reuse on the next patient. It still excludes your probes and dilators, so no TEE probes, ultrasound probes, regular dilators, manometry. Those will be covered by a new document, TIR-99, and it also excludes rigid scopes because those would be covered by ST-79 for steam sterilization, which you're probably all familiar with that. So that was a long-winded background on how we're at, where we're at with ST-91 and you know, where where we see it going in the future, five years for a revision cycle, unless something major happens in the world of endoscope processing. In the t- meantime, we're focusing on that TIR-99 for probes and dilators. Very cool. And I, honestly, I love hearing the background of ST-91 because a co-chair is only supposed to have a couple of years on their term, right? <laughs> it's supposed to be a very short amount of time. And you were there, I believe, eight straight years trying to get that document to that final publication. Is that right? Yeah, probably longer than that, Adam, if you count for starting in 2012 and ending. So my term ended in 2021 when the document was officially approved. You are only supposed to be on committees for for six years, three three years uh, renewable one one time. So total of six years. But Amy was gracious enough to let me finish out with the revision of this document because I'd put so much time and effort into it. And I'm very thankful for that. And with 2021 and the approval, then my term as co-chair did end and has since been passed on to another industry rep. And in the meantime, Garland Ray Grisby from Kaiser took over as the facility representative user end. We did want to get a little bit into the attention to detail as far as the wording on Amy Ansi documents. I believe all the ANSI documents follow the same kind of intention to detail in the wording, right? Should, shall, must, all those things. Can you kind of speak to the different terminologies that we see and which ones apply to uh, our standards and how we should interpret them? Yeah, great point, Adam. I always like to speak about this when I'm doing my presentations because words do have specific meaning within standards documents. And you're right, it's it's standard across Amy, ANSI even working to the international side with ISO documents, words are specifically give you the action that you take. So um, let's start with an example and the the most stringent one that's out there. If you see the word must in a standard, and this refers to ST91, the word must means it's an unavoidable situation. So those are things that are mandated by government regulation. So think about it as going above and beyond what the standard even says. So if you don't claim compliance with ST91, this is still something that you need to be doing because as an example, OSHA uh, might be telling you that 
you have to do that in your hospital. So these are covering topics like contaminated transport in the endoscopy world. So getting your dirty scope from the procedure room to wherever it's being reprocessed, that's an OSHA regulation that says you must transport it in these man- in this manner, in this type of container. The requirement to have appropriate PPE for employees within a healthcare facility, also governed by OSHA regulations. Having to take bloodborne pathogen training, also covered by OSHA. So again, must meaning those situations that are mandated, you have to do them even above and beyond the standard. Then we have a shall is the next tier down. And a shall means a requirement of the standard. So if your facility is claiming that they comply with ST91, then that is something you have to do. So a shall is a requirement of the document. Next is a should, and a should means it's a strong recommendation of the document. Um, So again, within that standard, if you claim compliance with ST91, then you should be doing something on that topic. But there's a little bit more wiggle room with a should, meaning that the way we say it is one way you could do it, but there may be another way to, to do that topic or to have another course of action that would uh, help you comply with that indication. So should is a strong recommendation of the working group based on evidence, based on experts within the field. So really you should be doing something when you see a should. The next tier down is a may, and may just means that you have permission to do that within the standard. So you may be doing it, you may not be doing it, but if you choose to do it, you have permission to do it. And then it can simply means you may have the capability in your facility to do that. It may be possible, but we're not giving a recommendation either way. So I hope that helps clear up, but really pay attention to the words. And I I like to say that this helps give you not necessarily a timeline, but a hit list. Okay, um, this is a must. Am I doing that? If I'm not doing that, that's my priority. I need to start with the musts first. So look at that for compliance. And then the same thing with a shall. When you're doing your crosswalk to see um, if you're in line with ST91, if something is a shall and you're not doing anything on that topic, you really should be doing something. So that would be your next priority. And it really does help with that prioritization because you'll see in this series of podcasts that there's a ton of changes, many new requirements. And it's, it is going to take time to implement those. So really paying attention to that words will help prioritize what your next steps are. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because inevitably when there's any standard comes out, whether it's new or not, it doesn't matter. Sometimes you know there's a gap there. And one of the biggest challenges really is not being becoming overwhelmed and not knowing where to start. So establishing priorities is huge. And I, I love how you shared a good way to at least get started with that and start with the ones that have those types of terms like the musts and the shalls and then move on down the road. Because the best thing is to not try and bite off everything at once. I just know that from my own experience, but yeah, things can get overwhelming very quickly. So great little piece of advice there. One thing I wanted to go back to a little bit and pivot a little bit is that you talked about 2015, which I remember when those standards came out, I was still in the operating room, but we had an endoscopy suite that we all sort of took turns working in. And I remember a flood of new changes coming out then and being so frustrated because I thought like there was somebody 
making all these changes to make our lives difficult. So I wanted to point out that after all of the experience I've had in the after 2015, I've learned a little bit more about these standards and where they come from and that they do, in fact, use peer-reviewed research as support for recommendations that are made. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to speak to that a little bit and how new information comes out. And that's kind of the spark, if you will, to either create a new document or uh, revise an existing one. Yeah, Kevin, that's a great point. It's not like we just sit in a room and say, this is what we're going to do, right? We do have groups, working groups, as we call them. And and the working group that writes ST91 is working group 84. So if you ever see that, it just means that's the group that is responsible for the creation and revision of that document, along with that new TIR-99 for probes and dilators. And that working group is made up of representatives from many different walks of life, we'll call it, within the endoscope processing world. It's not just a group of manufacturers who sit around and say, we have to do this or we have to do that. We do strive for fair balance of makeup of the committee between manufacturers. And by manufacturers, I mean we have scope manufacturers, AER manufacturers, product manufacturers, you name it. But we also have really nice representation from our regulatory groups. FDA sits on our group. They always attend, usually with multiple people on that working group. Joint Commission is a part of that. We've had in the past a AAAHC on there. So they're very helpful in really framing, well, you know, think about it from an FDA perspective. We don't accept that in at FDA. This is what we go by. So very important to have that regulatory side of things. We also have good representation from professional societies. As examples, AORN has representatives, SGNA, APIC, ASGE, HSPA, all sit on the working group that writes ST91. And then last but definitely not least, and the group that we try to make sure we have ample representation from is users from healthcare facilities. And I hate the name user, but that's what they're called within the standards world. And having those representatives of frontline staff from the actual healthcare facilities that will be utilizing this document is so important because you know firsthand whether these new changes are actually achievable in real life or are we setting facilities up for failure? And we we definitely want that input. Um, so I always like to do a shameless plug for if you're interested in joining the standards group, reach out to me and I'll put you in, in contact with the right people at Amy to try to get you involved. We do need that to make sure we we get that fair balance among the different groups. And then to piggyback on what else you said, Kevin, is the references and the peer-reviewed literature. So this multifunctional group that we get together sits down and we go through every comment that's received on the document when we're doing a revision. And we do look at those comments, as I said, individually for what they're saying, merit, feasibility, all of that but also for the documented evidence that supports making that change. So we do expect when somebody submits a comment, they'll say you know, what part of the document it is, what the proposed change is, and then they have to say why and give that evidence. And that really gives us the chance to incorporate new peer-reviewed literatures and studies that have happened on that topic to be able to have the backing that a healthcare facility would need to make those changes. And we've really strived within the new 2021 version to beef up our references and adding in all those peer-reviewed, as I said, but also adding in 
the references to the FDA MAUDE database. And the MAUDE, M-A-U-D-E, is a publicly searchable database available on the FDA website. And MAUDE stands for Manufacturer and User Facility Device Experience. And this is where medical device reports are submitted to the FDA by mandatory reporters like manufacturers of endoscopes or AERs, importers, and user facilities. So the healthcare facility, if you have a major event, patient injury, death, malfunction of equipment, it's all supposed to be reported into this database. And there are also voluntary reporters that often will enter reports into here, like healthcare professionals themselves. Patients even sometimes you'll see family members report into there and consumers adverse events that they've had uh, with certain medical devices. So there's a lot of great information in there. And we thought that it would be very helpful in order for facilities to see what's actually happening in real life at other facilities. It might be that a scope was damaged and it wasn't inspected and it was used on a patient and that patient was injured because of the damaged scope. Well, you can see that in there. So when we were trying to make changes and requiring inspection of endoscopes, at least a visual inspection, we put those citations in there. Here's what current literature says, but here's also what the users or manufacturers have submitted to the FDA as a really a safety alert that there was injury or or death or infection or cross-contamination, whatever it might be, serious issue with that. So we did add those in as evidence because we know that implementing ST91 is going to take time, not only for facilities to get a handle on and make those changes, but depending on if you weren't doing some of those things before, it may take longer. It may involve getting new products in. So we wanted you as the end users to have the evidence that you need to support making those changes. Maybe it's that you're writing up a a one-page requisition and trying to, to give the support that you need to order that piece of equipment or to make those changes in your protocols. Well, now you have that evidence that you can easily reference to get those resources and supplies that you need to make those changes. So that's why we took so much time adding in the references and citations to really have that evidence to back up our new requirements and recommendations. And as a former user of this document, having those citations is going to be huge for going to regulatory, going to risk and saying, look, this is what's in the standard. We're not currently complying with this. Here's all this data and here's all this research that's been done helping us to get to this point. So I really appreciate that brought the document for sure. We are out of time for this podcast. So I want to say thank you to Marianne, but don't worry, there is a lot more to get into with ST91. So we will be back with a lot more information from Marianne. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Marianne. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All opinions expressed on this show are those of the presenters. Before using any medical device, it is important to review the device manufacturer's instructions for use.